The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. The topic that I that I uh, offered uh, tonight for the talk, which is feeling to craving the vital link, uh, was meant to be um, something that would be of interest uh, both to people in recovery and to the broader. Uh, Dharma Buddhist community who don't identify as addicts uh, beyond their their addiction to self, which we all have. Um, And uh, and it refers to uh, one really, uh, I think really one of the deep teachings of Buddhism. uh, And so it needs to be um, set up a little bit, to take a little time with this. This will involve a little bit of uh, education in the Pali language, one or two words. Pali is the language of the uh, oldest Buddhist scriptures the, that, that are the foundation of the Theravada Buddhist tradition. Which common ground is in that lineage, essentially. Mark and I are trained in that lineage, as well as many of the other people who teach here. Um, so, feeling to craving. Where does this come from? This this is um, comes out of a teaching called dependent origination. So uh, dependent origination is the actual twelve step process by which the Buddha says that suffering arises, and it starts with ignorance in the recovery world called denial, and it proceeds through. Uh, this uh, causal chain which uh, right at its center is the link between feeling and craving. And uh, the Pali word for feeling is Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. And it refers not to our emotional state but to the sense impression we receive in every experience which is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So just the fact that we use the word feeling uh, for Vedana is just another one of those uh, translation problems that we have with Buddhist teachings because the, the Western language simply doesn't have some of the concepts that exist in Buddhism. Uh, so, uh, Vedana, so when I talked about the motorcycle going by, that, except for the, you know, bikers in here, that would be an unpleasant experience, right? So that's unpleasant Vedana. Uh, for, and, and as I say, but if you're, if you're a biker and you, you know, you might love that sound, it might make you think of, you know, wide open spaces and just being out on the road. And so the same experience for you could be pleasant, Vedana. Oh, yeah, man, that sounds like my old Harley, you know, right? Someone else might just really not care. It just doesn't really bother them. So that would be neutral, Vedana. So it turns out that every sense experience 
through our six senses in Buddhism, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking, every time there's a sense experience, there is a quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral to that experience for us. It's very conditioned, so it's not an absolute thing that motorcycles are unpleasant, just as I pointed out. It, it's, uh, how we receive Vedna is very, we could say personal, but it's not that kind of me kind of personal. So, okay, so there's this. And the Buddha made a big point of asking us to notice Vedna. If you know about the teaching called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is where like, all the meditations that are taught here <laughs> come up, out of practically, one of them, one of those four is Vedana, to pay attention to the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of each experience. So why did he want us to pay attention to Vedana? Well, because in this causal link, if we are not attentive to the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of an experience, the next thing that happens is craving or aversion, which is just the flip side of craving, or delusion, which is just not seeing so those are the three poisons. Those are the things that really cause us suffering. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Craving, aversion, ignorance. So when there's a pleasant Vedana, there's a tendency to think, oh, I want that. That's, yeah, I like that. This tastes good. I think I'll have some more. I think I'll get a whole bucket full. <laughs> or, I don't like that. Get out, get away. From, that's horrible. I can't stand that. We're in aversion. We're in resistance. In conflict. Or, we don't, really, just, it just kind of goes by and we're not aware and we're unconscious. We go unconscious. So, this then is a critical piece of addiction, obviously. When we become addicts, we start by having pleasant Vedana with our substance of choice or our behavior of choice. And also, we have unpleasant Vedana with the, the a mental state or emotional state that we're in. And we want to get away from that. So rather than being able to accept that and just be with it and say, oh, that's how it is, this is unpleasant, we go into aversion. Or rather than able being just enjoying something, oh, that's pleasant, now I'll let it go. We go into, I need more. I need to do that again. So this is why it's the vital link. The Buddha said, if you can see Vedna and not move into craving, then you can be present for your life, fully enjoy and embrace your life without falling into suffering. And in fact, in this 12-step causal chain from ignorance to suffering, 
this point between feeling and craving is the only place where the Buddha said you could step out. The rest of it unfolds inevitably. Now, of course, if 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 you don't start in this causal chain, you're all you also can avoid it. And the way to not start it is to not, in Buddhist terms, be ignorant, which just means that you're present. If you're if you're mindful, that's the opposite of ignorance. Ignorance doesn't mean you're stupid. It means that you don't see the way things work. You're that you're not present for things. You're just following habitual patterns. So this is a vital link because it's the place where we can step out of suffering. Uh, okay. I knew what was going to come next, but uh, it went away. It'll come back. Um, but I love this quote. So I'll read you this quote. This is the first line of the uh, Sin Sing Ming, the, the uh, verses on uh, faith uh, from the third Zen patriarch. The great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. And once you have that down, you don't have to read the rest of the text because... So here we are. This is this is what the Buddha is asking us to do: to just be present with that, our lives, without getting caught up. I know what I want. I want to tell you a story that I think exemplifies this idea of being mindful of Vedna without falling into craving. This uh, the, I've heard this story from Ajanamaro, who some of you might know of or know. Uh, a, a uh, monk in the Thai forest tradition. He's actually English. But, uh, and his teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, was the first Westerner to uh, go to Ajahn Chah's monastery, uh, uh, the great Thai forest master, uh, back in the 60s. And uh, Ajahn Sumedho was this, is this tall, uh, striking uh, American who showed up, uh, I think, after uh, his stint in the uh, Peace Corps in Thailand. He went and, and joined a uh, monastery. And, um, and Ajahn Sumedho, well, first of all, just to have a Westerner, to have an American monk was, was really uh, inspiring to the Thai lay people uh, and, and amazing to them. Why would an American come and do this? You know, they have everything there. Um, and, uh, you know, he started, he was sort of the forerunner of a, a really a movement, and uh, Jack Cornfield was one of the other people who went and uh, practiced there and became a monk under Ajahn Chah. But Ajahn Sumedho was really, um, we could say, a gifted uh, Dharma practitioner, meditator, and really uh, got it very quickly and really was devoted to practice, a very sincere, committed practitioner. And uh, it was probably in his first couple years there 
uh, one day uh, a group of uh, nurses were coming to visit the monastery to get teachings from Ajahn Chah. The lay people would come to see Ajahn Chah all the time, and, and he was revered in Thailand. And, uh, and people would come and ask him for what numbers to play on the lottery, apparently. So uh, I don't, I'm not sure how good he was at picking, but he didn't have much respect for that. But, um, but he had a lot of patience for whoever wanted teachings. So this group of uh, young Thai nurses came uh, to the monastery, and, and I don't want to appear to be uh, sexist in any way or uh, stereotyping in any way, but I'm going to be. So um, slightly, you might interpret it that way. Uh, that some people believe that Thai women are attractive, generally. So let's just say that these nurses were attractive. Uh, and, and, you know, nurses, I mean, you know how men are, right, with ner- women in uniforms. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so in any case, uh, this group of lovely young women comes to the monastery, and these are celibate monks. And, and uh, Ajahn Sameda was a young, strapping, celibate <laughs> monk. And Ajahn Chah says, Sameda, why don't, why don't you come and join me for this teaching today? Uh, and just uh, listen in. I just well, certainly. So Ajahn Sumedho sits with Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah uh, was notorious for giving lengthy Dharma talks. Just they could just go on and on. He would just start speak, talking Dharma, and it uh, could spin off into the night. So after some time, uh, he con- concludes his remarks. The nuns bow. I'm sure they bowed many times and expressed their gratitude and, and left. And uh, so after they left, Ajahn Chah turned to Ajahn Sumedho, kind of with a little sparkle in his eye, said, So, Sumedho, how was that? Uh, you know, obviously having kind of trying to test his commitment to his celibacy. His, you know, the integrity of, of his practice. And Sumedho said, I liked, but I did not want. Ajahn Chah was impressed, to say the least. Ah, Sumedho, he understands. And he used this teaching then for several weeks afterwards, every time someone... Oh, Sumedho, did you hear what Sumedho said? This is, this is Dharma. I like, but I do not want. That means that it was pleasant Vedana, but he did not go into craving. Didn't, there was feeling. He was aware that these women are attractive to me. They look nice. They look pleasant. I like how they look. But I'm not pulled in. I'm not my balance. I don't lose my balance. I don't lose my equanimity. Maintain that equanimity. Well, this is the quality that following Vedana cultivates, and that is equanimity. When we see the pleasant, the unpleasant, or the neutral, without moving out of that, without letting it grab us, we can be fully present. Enjoy a lovely, beautiful sunset, beautiful man, beautiful woman. 
lovely motorcycle. You know, we can appreciate it. But we can go, oh, smelly. Oh, not to my liking. Oh, unpleasant noise. But not be, again, that we're not disturbed. We're not, there's no turmoil. But this is a powerful practice, a powerful teaching. The Buddha talks about Vedana, in fact, in several other uh, realms. Vedana is one of the qualities that we use to define ourselves, to create the illusion of self. My identity is very much tied up in what I like, what I don't like. People walk around with, you know, some product, the name of some product on their clothing. That's my identity. I like Gucci. You know, that's me and Gucci. That's where, you know, I, I remember the first time I saw somebody wearing a Coke T-shirt back in their early 80s. Now, maybe it was a joke, but I'm pretty sure it was like Coke. I drink Coke, not I snort Coke, you know, which is... That was another thing. I think that came later, those T-shirts. Remember? And I saw it, I like, why is that person advertising Coke? You know, now we accept it, though, right? You know, Adidas, you know, whatever. You know, it just, we, we just wear it. Like, we're not getting paid. We're paying to do this stuff, to do this advertisement for these people. Why are we doing that? Because it's our, it reinforces a sense of self. Oh, yeah, I'm one of those people. You know, I drive this kind of car, and I have to wear these kind of clothes, and that's who I am. We create this sense of identity. I uh, recall being at a, a retreat at Spirit Rock uh, at one time some years ago, and uh, Spirit Rock, is a, it's a beautiful Dharma center built into the, the uh, coastal hills of Marin County. Uh, it's kind of in a canyon, and in the lower part of the canyon, they have the, uh, the area where they have daily events and even events. And then up the canyon is the residential center. And to separate the two, there's a gate. And when the gate comes together, it forms like one of those Zen O's. Uh, there's probably some official name for that. But anyway, it's a Zen O to me. I'm not a Zen practitioner. So, uh, and I re- recall being on that retreat and seeing and looking down the hill, and I saw that the gate was closed. And I had the thought, I like it when the gate is closed. And my mind was very clear. I'd been sitting for several weeks, and I was really in this state of equanimity. And I saw right away that that was pleasant Vedana. And And I immediately kind of made this joke in my head, like, oh, yeah, there's open gators, and there's closed gators, you know. And I recall now that there was, uh, if, if you remember Gulliver's Travels, there were the people who were the, who opened their soft-boiled eggs from the, the big end, and those who opened it from the little end, they're the big enders and the little enders. And there was a whole, like, war or something going on over this, you know. This is Vedna. That's all it is, Right? Uh, and wars are fought. 
over the over the craving and the aversion that comes out of Vedna. So it's, uh, but uh, but again, this we create our sense of self with this. So again, a critical thing to see in terms of how we build identity and become attached to. Oh, that's who I am, you know? and it it can be disturbing. You know, as t- as time goes on and sometimes our tastes change, and then. You know, I, I mean, I have a 16-year-old daughter, so it's like you're always at least six months behind. So you'll be like, oh, I got you this sweater. She's like, I don't like blue. What are you talking? What do you mean you always like blue? I haven't liked blue in years, and it's like, you know, three months ago. But it's, you know, our tastes change, and, you know, we can actually confuse ourselves. I don't like this anymore. Wait a minute! I used to like this. What happened? And we're kind of like, well, who am I now? You know, when you stop drinking and using, there can be a lot of confusion. I mean, we identify as, you know, well, that's who I am. I'm an addict. You know, I, 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 I mean, well, of course, when you're an addict, you don't <laughs> call yourself an addict. I'm, I mean, only after you stop do you call yourself an addict. It's a funny thing about that, but anyway, you know, it's like that's all of a sudden, you know, you you don't drink. Wine with dinner or something? It's like, oh, you know, who am I? It's strange. Uh, aging will do that to you, too. The, the worst is when you forget who you are. You know? <laughs> now, what do I like? I have to ask my wife sometimes. What do I like? <laughs> so what else? There might be one other thing I can talk about. Uh, five aggregates, I got that. Uh, I think I covered it. All right, we can leave early. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you can, from here on, you can interrupt me at any point, but um, uh, you could have interrupted me, but um, I'll I'll talk about one more thing, though, that... uh, well, actually, uh, you know, let me dig a little deeper into this. Uh, one of the things that came up for me over this winter, I understand you had an unpleasant winter. <laughs> that many people found unpleasant Vedana in your winter. Yeah. Well, we had a very pleasant climactic winter. But unfortunately, that didn't penetrate my psyche, and I had an unpleasant winter too. Um, but not the weather. Um, and I started thinking about how different personalities uh, tend towards the different forms of Vedna. So actually, I'll talk about this as personality types, but just in terms of my own experience, kind of realizing that something like depression or those kind of painful moods are really tied up with Vedna. And one of the ways, I mean, obviously those moods like that are in and of themselves unpleasant. Uh, And it's very hard not to go into something, into an aversion to them. But further, I think that when we are... uh, 
when we tend towards those types of moods, one of the reasons is that we, that many things strike us as unpleasant. You know, when you are, so this is the conditioned nature of Vedana. When you are depressed, then things that at other times might seem pleasant can actually be unpleasant. So, you know, a nice day, you can kind of go, oh, it's so nice, I wish I could enjoy it. You know, that sort of feeling like, oh, this, or, or um, uh, I can think of something. In any case, that it's, that's kind of what, you know, people say, well, you're, you're kind of a negative person. Well, that's kind of what it is, because that's how the world is hitting you. It's hitting you as negative. And on the other hand, you know, there are people who have, you can see, have more experiences of pleasant Vedana. And it's not sort of our fault, you know. It's, we can't go, oh, well, you should be happy or I'm happy because everything, you know, affects me, you know, in a pleasant way. It's just the way we are. It's some, somewhat constitutional and karmic, we could say. So the, in one of the ancient commentaries, so this doesn't come from the Buddha, but it comes from somebody who's really respected, who, the, from the, what's called the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification, one of the great commentaries on the Pali Canon, on the, on the Buddhist tradition. Uh, they, Buddha Gosa, who wrote this, uh, said there are three you know, personality types. Well, before I say that, you know that there's two kinds of people, right? There's people who believe there are two kinds of people and then people who don't believe there are two kinds of people. <laughs> so that's, we'll just get that out of the way. All right. But the, the, the three Buddhist personality types are tied in with Vedana. There's the greed type. This is the person who's always looking for new experiences and, and very open to experience. We call it greed. I mean, it's kind of a desire type who's kind of like, oh, yeah, this is great. I, and, and they tend to have very pleasant Vedana. Th- things hit them in a pleasant way. Uh, and, but they're always looking for new experiences. They're, they're, so there's, there's also this kind of impatience or, or uh, wanting to, for the next thing. And the, then the aversive type, which... Uh, is not looking for new experiences, is quite satisfied with, okay, they've, you've got it kind of together. I like this restaurant. I mean, that's the one we go to. You know, why would we go to another one? I like this one. You know, we get up at the same time. We, I mean, don't, don't ask me to go to Minneapolis because it involves changing my schedule, you know. Um, okay, it's, I'm an aversive type, I admit it. Not that I don't love coming here, but... Uh, and, and uh, then the delusive type, which is just kind of doesn't really know what's going on. So, the <laughs> so you can identify yourself. You can, as I talk about this, you might be able to sort of identify which type you are, or your friends would definitely be able to do it for you. The, you know, the, if you you say a greed type walks into a party and goes, "Wow, this looks like fun. There's all these interesting people here. Who shall I talk to first? This is great." The aversive type comes in and goes. They have to invite him, you know. I don't know why I even bothered. Why did I come? You know, it's so noisy here. It's... The deluded type comes in and goes, "Am I in the right place? <laughs> what time did this start?" So, the point of this isn't 
a parlor game, although it's, it is a fun one. But for us to actually just see that we're a type. And there's only three types. So we're not really that unique. In the recovery world, we talk about terminal uniqueness. Right? Well, the thing about, you know, in Buddhism, we're trying to get us out of this self-view, this idea that there is some unique self that's separate from the world and has some qualities that just are, you know, are just me, define me. There's no other me. And when we can see that, yeah, there's, you know, I have certain qualities that are distinctive. People can, you know, people don't get confused when I walk in the room. Is, is that Joe or Bob? No, they, they recognize me. And, you know, that's, but that also... I can see, oh, I'm an aversive type. Oh, so then when I get into a situation and I feel like, Ugh, you know, I can go, oh, look, there's, there's aversion. Rather than believing it, getting following it, and playing it all out, I can just go, oh, there I go again. You know, I don't even have to have someone say, there you go again. Wasn't that, I don't know, it was Reagan who said that to Carter, I think. And, Mondale. Oh, Mondale? Yeah, thank you. You're in Minnesota. You would know, right? Mm. Yeah. So this is just a way, when we can bring mindfulness to this and start to, um, you know, just take things less personally, right? That's one of the keys to this practice. It's one of the keys to recovery as well. To just see, oh, these are just, this is just karmically caused responses that are arising in this moment due to these circumstances. How do I want to respond to them? And that's an ideal. Of course, we're still going to be have our reactions, but but this is a, this is a part of our practice. It's kind of a really valuable part of our practice to see what these tendencies are, and to you know most of the time. I'm only aware of Vedna in retrospect. I kind of go, oh, right, that was unpleasant. No wonder I was aversive. Or that was really pleasant. No wonder I started grasping at it. Because it's hard to see it in the moment. And it's really, as I described, more on a retreat situation where you can kind of catch it. Whoa, look there, there it is. But even to see it in retrospect helps us. Because even in that moment of retrospect, I can stop and go, oh, okay, I don't have to keep following this, and I don't have to judge myself. It's just how it is. So this is uh, feeling to craving, a vital link that we want to break. So that leaves a little bit of time. If there are any thoughts or questions, yes. Oh, well, oh gosh. Sometimes you know, unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral, fine. But you know, <laughs> chemicals are kind of surging through you. Yeah. That unpleasant, and it's really painful. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way I could stop it then is to 
Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if you had any suggestions. <laughs> to not getting triggered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I just think getting very familiar with those feelings and so that you cultivate a habit of noticing them when they come up. So a lot of my sitting practice is sitting is focusing on feelings and noticing feelings and so that then outside of my practice I tend to notice them more too. Uh, you know, we're not perfect, you know. I know. I mean, I'm Progress, not perfection. I but, say it's unpleasant, yeah. but that doesn't stop that zing. Does it <coughs> right. always come up? Is that part of yeah. the unpleasant, the zing? You know, I think it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there is, I think it's even separating out the idea of uh, or not calling things pain mm-hmm. and rather calling them unpleasant mm-hmm. <laughs> actually can be a shift in and of itself. A little bit yeah, yeah, because it's, it's really interesting to watch the spectrum of sensation and see if you can see where sensation crosses from, you know, pleasant to neutral to unpleasant, and where you would start to call it pain. Because that, even in itself, is conditioned, and it's, and it's, uh, it's not absolute, in the sense that, uh, the example I like to give is, is e- if eating spicy food, if you, if you like spicy food, then you like your mouth to get really hot. You know, there's, there's this sensation, right? And, but if you had that sensation in your knee, you would call it pain. But if you like spicy food, you call it pleasure in your mouth. So it, it's not an absolute thing. It's very much conditioned by how we view our experience. Right? So the, the more you know, R-rated uh, version of that is orgasm. If you had an orgasm in your foot, you'd probably call the doctor. You know, <laughs> ah, what is? Jeez, ah, ah. You know, it's. But we believe that it's pleasant. It's an intense sensation. Right? So, but whether we define something as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is very conditioned. So if we can take that attitude towards, particularly towards physical, uh, what we define as pain, and, and try to back off just into neutral, into observing, just feeling what is rather than naming it, then they, we can really have some major shifts uh, in meditation itself when we can open to and just allow intense sensation. Sometimes that can actually transmute into something completely different, into a form of energy uh, that can be actually really focus the mind. Another question too. A lot of times do we um, start thinking when we get into aversion? Do we? A, oh yeah, well, is uh, that a kind of a sign that I you I didn't think we were doing this together. <laughs> <laughs> I meant all of us. <laughs> is that, I mean, if you're saying, okay, I'm pleasant and you're equanimous, 
then there wouldn't be a lot of thought, like Samato saying, like, but don't want. Yeah. For him to go to craving, he'd have to start thinking about this person. So is yeah. thought kind of a, a red flag that you might be headed that way to craving or aversion? When, when I examine thoughts, it's very hard for me to find one that doesn't have some form of desire or aversion in it. Yeah, thought. I'm not going to say that thought is an expression of desire and aversion, but I might some other time say that if I think about it some more and decide that I'm right. Parallel between the teaching of going from feeling to craving and the second arrow teaching? Is that yes. along the same line? Yes. Or right. The second arrow that we've gone from feeling to craving? Yeah. Yeah. So the teaching on the second arrow that Emil was mentioning is um, the, Bu- the Buddha talks about suffering comes about because we have an experience and then we add on to it. So if there is a physical sensation that's unpleasant, then we start to think about it. Or if some emotion comes up or we're sad and then we get start to ruminate on it. And we that that, that suffering actually comes with the second arrow rather than the first arrow. And it's, it's very much that exactly. It's yeah, those are the two pieces of it. Yeah, thanks. Bill, go. For example, what? For example, I wear Gucci's, therefore that's my identity. Yeah. <laughs> what about I Bill and I'm an alcoholic, and that becomes my identity? Yeah, I mean, this certainly question has come up in this in this work over the years, and um, so I'll say a couple things. One is, first of all, I consider that a skillful means as uh, you Zen people say, upaya, which... Uh, oh, okay, thank you. I'll remember that for two seconds. <laughs> Write it down and send it to me in an email. Enso, E-N-S-O? Okay. And so... Uh, so I think it's... It, you know, in, re- in the recovery world, for me, that's a remind- for, reminder, in a sense, like a mindfulness bell. Like, ding, oh, yeah, right, I'm an addict. <laughs> and that, what, it, what it means is I have this tendency or this inclination towards addictive behavior, shall we say. Um, and so when people complain to me about that, as they occasionally will, well, I don't want to say I'm an alcoholic because it's just, you know, creating an, uh, an identity. What I like to say to them is, okay, when you get rid of the rest of your identities, then you can get rid of this one too. But the fact is that we walk through life with multiple identities. You know, I am Kevin Dharma teacher, Kevin writer, Kevin musician, Kevin father, Kevin husband, Kevin friend, Kevin golfer. Uh, You know, so which one is me? Well, none of them is me, but my mind 
attaches to each one in succession. And the work is to, not, is to hold them all lightly, right? Because, uh, yeah, of course, we, we, we play these roles. So uh, that's kind of a very 60s idea, you know. It's just all a game, man, you know. It's, let's drop another tab and, you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the way I see it. Is that these are these are roles that we hold lightly, but we don't see them as defining us. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I see a uh, a possible uh, danger in in one of the uh, one thing that you said. Uh, if you if you say, well, this is um, uh, this is just a pleasurable experience, and I'm going to be I'm just going to be neutral to it. I mean, you could say, well, heroin is just a pleasant uh, uh, experience, and I'm just going to be neutral to it. Uh-huh. I'm not going to be affected by it. Right. And I think I think that part of wisdom is is also saying um, that that pleasure has 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 a downside, has consequences, right. that, or that indulgence in pleasure, and um, and I'm going to I'm going to live a moderate life. I'm going to I'm, I'm not going to um, uh, I'm going to steer towards uh, less extreme experiences yeah. and try and find pleasure, small pleasures. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 for me, has been a real breakthrough yeah. um, to keep my, keep my pleasures really, <laughs> you know. And, then, and, then the down, and, and, and there will be a downside even to those. But they'll be sort of within, I, I won't lose control. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's right. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point, and you know, it, it kind of because it does. It, it you can go if you follow that logic of what you're pointing out. I said it can get to yeah, mindful drinking, which you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, if you go to Shambhala Mountain Center, they'll some people actually talk about that, uh, and. Um, you know, it's possible that some people can do that. I don't know why they would bother. I mean, you know, if I'm drinking, it's because I don't want to be mindful. But, but um, yeah, I mean, the, this is really one of the – it's really an, uh, a great edge to, to work with in our practice and in our recovery. How can I be fully present and fully enjoy life without becoming attached? My answer to that is you probably can't. But that, as you're pointing out, if I just make sure that... That's why, besides mindfulness, I also have the five precepts, the one of which says I don't use intoxicants. And I also have, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, which... uh, You know, so, yeah. You know, there's... We are talking about this at dinner. You know, there's mindfulness and and these kind of... uh, practices and viewpoints that we're working with that are very fluid in certain ways and there's this kind of relativity and all of that but then there is the practical realities of you know I'm married and I'm I work within that form you know with my sex life I'm you know a recovering alcoholic and I work within that form I don't I don't break out of that so it's so important to me to not just Oh yeah, whatever you feel, you know, just be present. That's uh, the road to ruin, you know, for an addict. Uh, to ha- to have real clear limits, 
and, but at the same time to be able to fully live within those limits and enjoy them. And as you say, the, you know, when, we, when the fog lifts and when we are engaged in life, we don't need the intensity of experience in order to enjoy life because life is intense, you know. Uh, we don't have to amplify it. You know, oh, I think I'll take a line of crystal meth and really have some fun. It's like, really? Ugh. You know, it's just not necessary. Uh, life is so rich and intense and powerful. That, uh, you know, um, that's, and that's, you know, yeah, that's the great joy and, and the challenge to find that. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Good. Thank you. That's a great point. Um, I, I, I won't talk about multiple lifetimes because I haven't had any, I, you know, me- I don't have any memory of that experience that I can speak to. But, um, but it, it is important to distinguish um, grasping from wise intention or uh, and and this is a, another kind of critical and subtle uh, uh, piece that the Buddha talks about that uh, that when we are sincerely drawn towards awakening, or we're sincerely drawn towards service, or to care for people, or to give, that these are uh, really. Um, Wise and, and skillful motivations that that are not that although they have uh, the form of wanting that the wanting itself is pure or has a has an integrity to it and that and that those are the things that we should listen to. Uh, you know, my my experience is that n- none of none of my Intentions are a hundred percent pure, but I try to follow the ones that are, you know, have the most sort of integrity to them and the most value. And you know, I mean, being a Dharma teacher, you know, obviously has a lot of positive value. I, there's also things that I want about it. You know, I like getting the attention, and I. And I get paid to do it, so there's, you know, there's that, a little little greed piece in the mind. I hope they leave a lot of, value, you know, and you just kind of go, okay, hi, thanks for sharing. That's not really why we're here, but you know, you just sort of see that those things are operating, and 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 try to really use the the highest motivation as your guides. One more, yes. I think this might sort of be part of that question too, which is, you know, like addiction to me, like one way to see it, I think, is as an attachment. And like the other gentleman was saying, there's relatively sort of, maybe this is what he was saying, that there are wholesome things to be attached to, such as the practice of meditation. Mm -hmm. But when is, you know, like how do you work with that attachment in the sense of, you know, the greater aspiration of waking up. There's actually a, a sutta called One Fortunate Attachment. And 
that that one fortunate attachment is mindfulness. The Buddha says we should be mindful, uh, that, that it's okay to be attached to mindfulness. But um, <coughs> I'm not sure what you mean by how do we work with that in the greater... Do you mean in yeah, terms of, like, balancing think, your life? Yeah, I think that's more what I meant. Like, I want to go on retreats all the time, but I or also... Or just, like, I want to spend my time practicing, but I have to also, you know, care about the people that I love and yeah. do my job and, um, you know, yep. person in the world. Well, the way we balance those things is very mindfully. <laughs> I mean, you know, but seriously, I... There's a place, there's a, I will say, there's a time in our lives, a season in our lives for, for practice. And if we're lucky, we're ready at that time and the circumstances are there and we can take that time to do intensive practice. But if we're going to be lay people particularly, there's going to be other seasons in our lives, other, other emphases, time to, for school, time for family, time for children or a partner uh, and the you know the great challenge and, and really the great reward of practice is to bring these qualities into each of the, those experiences and to draw out of each of those experiences the spiritual aspect of it. My my uh, you know current obsession, which is of golf, which Emil mentioned, is. I have found that when I go to a golf course, and I often go alone and get hooked up with a couple of other people that are going out, I find there's tremendous compassion on the golf course among golfers. You know, there's tremendous forgiveness and kindness. Oh, that was a rough shot. Oh, there's tremendous mudita, sympathetic joy. That's a great putt. You know, and it's, you know, we're playing golf. Like most people don't think this is like the most spiritual thing. You know, maybe you should come back and write a book. Come on, do something useful with your life. Uh, but, you know, if, if we look for it, right, there are spiritual lessons in, in most activities. I'm not going to say all because uh, probably shooting heroin, not so much. But, but uh, yeah. So that, and that's, it's, that's, it's much more challenging, of course, to be present mindful, compassionate, loving in those intense, challenging situations in life and family and work and all. Uh, uh, and so that, that raises the bar. I mean, I have heard monastics say, I'm not sure where I heard this, but I, it comes through monastics. And maybe, I'm not sure if, I don't think the Buddha said this, but in any case, that it's much easier to practice when you're a monk than it is when you're a layperson. And usually you think, oh, well, it'd be really hard to be a monk, you know, you can't have dinner, you can't have sex, you can't have a car, you, can't, you, can't, you have to get up early in the morning. You do, but you don't have all that stuff getting in the way of just being present. So it's a tremendous path, the lay path. Uh, so, well, thank you for that. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.